Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? Well, David, you know, mood is doom backwards, so my doom is good. I, uh, I've had a <laughs> few hiccups today, but I had an epiphany this morning. Epiphany as discipline is my new recommendation. Uh, so mine was uh, kind of in the words of, of, you know, the old Grateful Dead song, what a long, strange trip it's been. And I realized, let's, okay, let's say it's, it's a five billion year trip. I realized today that the meta-miraculous thing is that we've been here for the entire extravaganza, even if we don't remember it, you know? I mean, yeah. Dylan Thomas said, the fruit of man unwrinkles in the stars, and, you know, we're still unwrinkling. The whole deal is like this insane super Leibniz meets Erwin Allen production, you know, bizarre creatures, rituals, patterns ideas and uh you know and machines like uh, orchids and cyclones you know so <laughs> yeah that was my yeah. good groove you know and i i'm not gonna leave that I, I had a few hiccups along the way but i started off with a good morning epiphany groove that's excellent that's excellent i wish that i could say that i did as well but i spent the weekend at my in-laws house and it's just complete chaos <laughs> my mother-in-law unfortunately had to put down her her, uh, not Rottweiler, what am I saying, German Shepherd about a week ago. And she is a incredibly fascinating woman, you know, growing, like, in her neighborhood in East L.A., where my wife was born, she was known as the neighborhood Bruja, right, who would kind of do spells for people. And she has this incredibly interesting, chaotic energy. And the way that she handles grief is to kind of be on this very, uh, violently oscillating uh, <laughs> pitch shift, right? Um, so it's kind of hard to get your footing. And I think it's left me a bit emotionally drained, right? People who are magically adept tend to do this. They tend to sort of project whatever they're feeling onto other people. So I think I was getting a little bit of that energy or that vibe, but I'm really happy to be back here uh, talking to you because your vibes seem fantastic. You seem like you are in a great place. And so now I'm going to uh, vampirize that a little bit. I'm going to leech some of that energy and hopefully not give too much of my own sort of uh, humdrum feelings back to you. I think you're cool and you can you can drink at my well anytime. I, <laughs> I, I am in a good place. And I, I, I'm kind of refusing to uh, to budge from my, my good groove. You know, I, mm. I think that's the, one of the biggest things to uh, that we all have to you know think in terms of psychic defense. And at the end of this episode, I, I um, I've got a, a, a sort of a basic practical tip on that, and I uh, I'm going to try to include that in all our part one. Uh, free-to-air episodes, because I think people have asked about, well, this all sounds good, but are there any practical tips for regaining uh, one's mind, regaining uh, the good groove, uh, how to maintain that? You know, these things are stuff that we all need to talk about and uh, talk more about than what, you know, what we do on social media so much of just pinging back and forth a lot of bad news, like, 
you know, of course that's going to lead to anxiety, depression, and uh-huh. paranoia, you know. So we've got to fight the power, you know, fight yeah, the power. Yeah. Yeah, the power, the, the the paranoia rather has been also very strong for me lately. I mentioned that on a previous episode. Um, this feeling of thoughts not necessarily being my own uh, have has you know increased over the past week rather than than decreased. But I read an article recently that I want to talk about at the top of the show that actually helped. Now, at first glance, this might seem to just add to the confusion and chaos of what's going on right now, but. To me, this read as a complete relief, right? So if you'll permit me just for a few minutes here, I'm just going to kind of go over this fascinating article that was at Meta R. Ziv Preprints, which is an interdisciplinary archive of articles focused on improving research transparency and reproducibility from the Berkeley Initiative for Transparency in the Social Sciences, blah, 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 right? Um, and I want to give a quick shout out to Jay Springett for putting this on his Twitter, the cursed Twitter website, uh, because reading this really helped me out. So this is a paper that is called Observing Many Researchers Using the Same Data and Hypothesis Reveals a Hidden Universe of Uncertainty. This is right up the no country alley, right? Sure All is. The- all the episodes that we have done on science and scientism and what science is actually supposed to be used for and the problems of reproducibility, I think, are completely laid bare in this article. So very quickly, the abstract states, how does noise generated by researcher decisions undermine the credibility of science? We test this by observing all decisions made among 73 research teams as they independently conduct studies on the same hypothesis with identical starting data. We find excessive variations of outcomes. And they go on to say that the variations of outcomes cannot be explained by the inherent biases of the researchers themselves. Uh, The summary of it is that idiosyncratic variability in findings testing a single hypothesis using the same data offers insights into previously unacknowledged complexity of the scientific process. So on page five, I won't read the whole thing, but essentially what they did was they took 126, let me make sure I get that number correctly, I'm going off memory here, sorry, 162 researchers across 73 teams. They gave them uh, a bunch of data about whether or not immigration reduces support for social policies, right? And after allowing the research teams to take that data and take that hypothesis and work with it and test it, um, the different teams came up with very, very different results. So uh, <laughs> this is fascinating. 13.5% of the team conclusions was that the ho- the hypothesis was not testable given the data. 60.7% concluded the hypothesis should be rejected. And 28.5% concluded the hypothesis was supported. So what is all this saying? What this is saying is that you can give people the exact same data and the exact same starting point and you can try to account for as many variables as you can. I encourage anybody who wants to to read this paper. I will link it 
in the Patreon show notes. You can try to control for as many variables as possible, and regardless of people's backgrounds, political, ideological, whatever, people come to broadly different conclusions about these things. Um, We also find that competencies and potential confirmation biases do not explain the broad variation in outcomes. Researcher characteristics show no significant association with statistical results or even substantive conclusions. And this, I think, has been one of the craziest things about the recent pandemic that we've had as somebody who has pretty much since day one been obsessed with following COVID data and trying to understand what it all means. What I, I, I cannot tell you the countless amount of not just Twitter arguments, but arguments between real credentialed top of their field scientists, whether they're virologists, epidemiologists, statisticians, what have you, about what certain data sets mean, whether that's using computer models or just good old fashioned, you know, pen and paper science. This year has taught me that nobody knows what the hell is going on, <laughs> right? But to me, this is an amazing finding. It's oddly calming in a way, in the way that we talk about things like damned facts. If if there is no real basis for believing that there is a conclusion with a capital C that you can reach through uh, data and hypothesis, then there's no harm in bringing the magical and the strange into your calculations. Well, I'd agree with that. Um, I, 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 there are a couple of things about this. Um, I mean, I, I think that the, the paper that you're referring to and read from is, is very interesting. It, it, it's actually echoed by several uh, research studies. You know, so you've got the researchers doing research on the research you know, it becomes mm-hmm. a kind of infinite regress of who's watching the researchers doing the research. Um, right. But this is not an unusual finding, and it, it often um, applies with a, a range of, of uh, flaws, you know, whether it be methodology, you know, the honest mistake, but just a misguided approach all the way through to outright fraud. I mean, we have some great examples in the history of science about hoaxes and frauds, you know, uh, perpetrated for a variety of reasons, you know, Um, sometimes a joke, sometimes personal gain. Uh, But I think that what's interesting is that, you know, while we're uh, celebrating damn facts and a broader, more humanist science and magical, uh, integrated psychological and anthropological approach to science, and to break it out of, of its orthodoxy, the kind of orthodoxy that Rupert Sheldrake uh, is, it, uh, is trying to combat. We can also say that, that science done properly is, is very skeptical of itself and is always trying to research and improve its methodologies. That's science done really, you know, good-heartedly and well. And I, I think that some of these findings are actually, you know, encouraging in the sense that they can help people improve methodology. Um, we're not teaching this in, at the university level. Uh, the scientists of, of tomorrow, the people training right now, 
are, are very often uh, software developers. You know, they're leaving many of the, the, the traditional sciences. So it's, it's a tricky thing. Uh, hopefully we're getting some good medical researchers uh, because we're certainly going to, you know, need them continuously. I, I think we need people who know butterflies as well, but uh, we, we certainly need uh, people in the medical uh, realms. But I wonder if uh, this isn't part of a larger topic that we could explore, where we have situation X, but reality Y. And I'll give you the example here. We have uh, an article telling us that we should be more and more skeptical about research data and statistics. And yet, every day we become more dependent on those things. Uh, we're told that the Internet and, and new technology would help decentralize the world. Well, we're not seeing that. We're seeing the big tech companies having more power. We're seeing our lives more dependent on on, on technological forces. I looked to a tech support uh, organization earlier today and turned my computer over to them, and it was very unsettling. Um, yeah. it, it makes me paranoid. I, I really don't know if they're gone, uh, but. I, it's a metaphor for our time, isn't it? Is somebody controlling our computer? Is someone controlling our our mind? You know, we, we're these are legitimate uh, anxieties that we face today. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that that this topic is part of of a, of a bigger topic, um, which I would like to explore on its own. I, I think there are some very interesting things going on there. Yeah, I would be definitely interested in that. Would that be something that you would want to do in this particular episode, or did you have something else that we wanted to talk about today? Well, I think we 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 started off talking about the invention of childhood, and I, I think we've got mm -hmm. some work to wrap up on that. But uh, okay, actually, um, I mean, I I think that with the with the series overall, we're we're getting to an interesting point where we're covering so much ground. I think that. For our own purposes, but for our listeners' benefit too, uh, we, we might start off with just a little bit of a quick summary of where we got to in the last episode. So I'm I'm ready to lay that out fairly quickly, and then to get us to uh, some sort of a point of resolution about this uh, about the childhood. Uh, scenario because i i think that's a really a quite a big topic actually um okay yeah that sounds good to me okay all right well starting off on just a little summary i i thought it was interesting that in the last episode you you kicked us off with a mention of sensory deprivation tanks which mm -hmm. something i i actually have quite a bit of experience uh with uh john Lilly, who's one of our uh mutual heroes uh, actually invented the sensory deprivation tank as as a real research tool, and I uh, had the benefit of the uh, one at Monash University in uh, in Australia, and then I've done a lot of just basic flotation tanks with uh, as much sensory deprivation as I can. But one of the things that you mentioned that I think is interesting is that Lily had two really important observations, uh, and they've stuck with me, and I, I can speak from my own personal experience that I also experienced them. One was the physical sensation 
of actually hearing one's central nervous system, which, you know, we were talking in the, in the last episode, too, about ambient noise, uh, that we've referred to that in a in, in couple of different uh, segments of, of the series. And I think there is an ambient noise within the human body. Uh, Lily described a sound like popping bacon, you know, when bacon is frying. And I've had that same sort of thing. But the more important observation, which I think goes to the heart of our biggest level of inquiry, and it's the, it's the topic that we're kind of, uh, in one sense, peeling back behind the paywall, is his realization that uh, the great fear is not death. It's, it's a fear of, of insanity in the sense of dissolution of self. And he writes about uh, an experience that I've had very directly of almost stepping backstage of one's own consciousness and seeing mm. all these props and stage machines and weird hieroglyph systems and associative patterns and abstractions and just this amazing jumble of things, which we, you know, maybe people have had that experience falling asleep or, or coming out of a dream. And I think this deeper level of consciousness is, is what we're exploring behind the paywall with, with the ghost radio signal. I think mm -hmm. for people who are interested in joining us on that discussion, we're talking really about deep associative patterns that make consciousness, the receptivity to language, and the participation in culture with a capital C possible. So that, that's one thing. Uh, we did also uh, touch on one of our big topics of, of the history of language. And I think that there is an important acknowledgement that we are very much uh, looking at language in terms of what is called the Benjamin Whorf and Edward Sapir hypothesis that language in terms of deep structures of thought actually shapes, if not determines, possible thought. In other words, our language, with a capital L, really determines our worldview. It, it shapes the world that we have to see. The other acknowledgement, I think, which is uh, we, we, we've talked about access to different levels of the game. In other words, thinking about consciousness in terms of a video game, which I think is a good metaphor. Uh, and the science fiction writer Werner Vinge, V-I-N-G-E, uh, I think he deserves more credit. He, he is not necessarily a great writer, but he's a great theorist about consciousness and new technology and how new technology uh, can be used as a metaphor uh, with, with some degree of, of real utility. Sometimes I think that's overused. But uh, So we have the, the Benjamin Wharf, Edward Sapir, Link, uh, Werner Vinge, uh, you brought up a beautiful metaphor of, of William James, which I think we need to repeat, of, of cats in a library. Uh, and David, do you want to just repeat your, your explanation of that? Because I just think that's such an important idea. And William James is very important to both of us. Indeed. I want to actually amend it a bit. I don't want to leave dogs out of this. So the actual William James quote includes <laughs> dogs and cats in his, in, in his analogy here. But the idea of dogs or cats in a library, 
has to do with the idea that a cat could exist within a library surrounded by all of these tomes of <clears throat> of ancient knowledge and not have the slightest idea even what they are, let alone what was contained within them. The cat is concerned largely with being fed and finding a comfortable place to sleep. Um, and the way that that uh, expands out to us is the idea that perhaps we are, in fact, like cats in a library, sort of dumb to um, a greater system of, of knowing and knowledge than we can even be aware of, because we are metaphorically just looking for food and a place to sleep. But okay. it has to do with kind of extrasensory perception. Well, not, not ESP, but you know what I mean. Yes, That yes. would be a subset of it. <laughs> Okay, well, that was an important metaphor. I, I think we'll keep coming back to that. Then we introduced, I think, what really was the an important idea in in last episode of the the cultural uh, mood or syndrome, because we did kind of refer to it in in terms of uh, a disorder, uh, nostalgia. Uh, we have we all know sort of what personal nostalgia means, but. To, to say nostalgia with a capital N as a kind of distortion of reality, and it's based on a distortion of childhood. And we, we ask the question of whether or not this is a result of a kind of indefinite childhood state, particularly within American society. And, uh, you know, it is a real question. We, we had talked earlier about uh, initiation rites in indigenous cultures and the fact that we really can't count on that kind of uh, communal and consensus approach to ceremonial uh, vectoring of, of, of individual lives. You know, we just don't have that structure. I don't think any of us feel the level of confidence in that, that, that you know, people did a hundred years ago, even, and it, it really mm -hmm. raises some questions about the stability of, of society without that. Um, but I, I wanted to look at, at a little bit more of this uh, this sense of, of then how we do define childhood, because I think we came up with a couple of of well, an interesting sort of triad. Without, we're certainly talking about time, aren't we? Childhood. Mm -hmm. Is all is a time period, if nothing else. We then have certainly a question about sex. Childhood has a, a, a it's a reference to sexuality. It stands in relationship to it. Uh, I have later an absolutely wonderful uh, bit of Graham Greene writing about. Uh, a maturing Shirley Temple in an infamous movie review that cost him some real money. He was sued for it, um, which I'll read later. But the third element we were saying that defines childhood is a relationship to pop culture. And I, I specifically sort of got to that point when you said, and I quote, uh, that People your age, many friends, there's an obsession with toys. And I thought yeah. that was very, very interesting. And we have a confused relationship with toys, don't we? Uh, because we, 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 you know, we like to think we're all, you know, still capable of enjoying toys. Toys are good. And yet mm -hmm. there's something in what you said, though, that 
Uh, an obsession with toys doesn't sound good, does it? No, no. And it isn't. I can give examples, but no, okay. I would say no. Okay. Well, then here's my question, because I think this this is what, what a lot of this discussion turns on. If we have a cultural distortion of childhood and a cultural syndrome of dependence on nostalgia in certain ways. And I've had students who are only 18 and they have nostalgia, you know, <laughs> for certain moments in their life. Um, I wonder then what we're saying about what does it mean to be adult? You know, mm -hmm. think about, I, I get hit every time I think about the phrase adult films. Mm -hmm. I mean, think what that means. It means porn. But yeah. isn't, isn't that a disappointing, narrow, uh, kind of juvenile uh, use of the word adult there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that it it is interesting that it's directly linked to pornography, particularly with how sort of explicit pornography... So pornography uh, basically for me at least, always seems to be a lack of subtlety. So you can call uh, lots of things pornographic that have nothing to do with sex, but they, they tend to be things that are very light on metaphor and very heavy on kind of concrete, um, sort of almost, you know, gynecological textbook style uh, intimacy, right? <laughs> so basically, uh, the idea of adult films... Uh, being being porn, I think maybe points to a conception of adulthood that we have as being very concerned with practical, metaphorless meat and potatoes, getting the work done, uh, and and less so with a sense of whimsy, with a sense of metaphor or analogy or magic. What do you think about that as a as a starting point? Well, I, I think that is, in all you know, for all practical uh, purposes, exactly right. I, I'm not really sure um, how we get to that point. Um, mm -hmm. That that seems a well, it seems like a very tragic uh, evolution. Uh, if that's right. in fact something that that you know is, is part of some larger reality, I, I'm not sure. I do accept that as as a a reality unto itself. I think that's kind of um, something that uh, I wonder how recent in time that is. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I, I think just just the idea of of work being such a negative. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's not something that everyone uh, has always felt. There are a lot of people who enjoy their work. There are people who see the value in work. Uh, there was a time when an adult, mature uh, perspective valued work. And I, I think that's a wonderful, uh, I hadn't really thought of this before, but I, I think that goes into uh, the hat with some of these other elements. Because if we did do a research survey and we could trust the results, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. which you mentioned as being a problem, I, I have a distinct feeling that uh, the majority of legal adults would have a negative reaction to the word work. 
Oh, I think I think they would a hundred percent. And I, now that I'm thinking more about it, I want to take a step back for just a second and look at it through the lens that you presented with you know with what is adulthood through the lens of say time, and work is a big part of this. And you'll notice that uh, schools largely are concerned with orienting children towards an adult conception of time. Make sure that you are here at five o'clock. It becomes very rigid. And as you get older, it also moves a lot faster. So things that come to mind with a childhood perception of time, I remember waiting for Christmas forever, just just for, for Christmas Day, you know? Um, it usually started at a, in about August or September, and we would start counting down the days. Once December started, we'd get our advent calendars, and we'd open up all those little windows every day to get a chocolate all the way up to December I remember 25th. those, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, and I, I just recall because you have so so little time accumulated every day seems to stretch on forever, and now days can disappear in the blink of an eye. You'll hear it all the time. People say things like, well, look at that. It's Monday again, right? <laughs> it almost feels like it's always Monday. Um, so I think that that kind of uh, sort of dilation of, of, of youthful time is an interesting concept. Sex, similarly, uh, is much more, it seems to have, what it does, have a lot more gravity and mystery to it. Whereas uh, when you become an adult, it's more of like being really hungry. I don't know if you've seen some people who are really uh, horny do incredibly silly things. Um, it's, it's a similar kind of animalistic drive once you get to adulthood. It's something that has to be sought out and, com and, and the act has to be completed in order for people to get their heads back on straight. And it just, it didn't have that, at least for me, in, in childhood, right? It was this very kind of strange, powerful, mysterious thing, you know, where just being around a girl would make you feel all kinds of incredible, magical, shamanic vibes, right? Um, or, you know, or a guy, if, if you're of that persuasion. Um, so I think that those, those things all do kind of center around work and nobody really, nobody really does like work. Nobody likes what work does to time or does to things like sex. Nobody wants to have sex after a long day at work, right? Um, but all of these things to me point towards adulthood, uh, Maybe I'm just in a bad mood and I'm being negative, but it do, it seems to point to a, a kind of a, a prison, right? Of uh, of you know of obligations and you know and um, and schedules. I don't know. Well, let's break that apart, and I want to do that in a few different ways. I I, I think it's interesting to uh, look at children in literature and literature for children, and I mean also. Uh, not just printed books, you know, in time, but but also going back to the great oral traditions, we have a kind of weird evolution, which I think speaks to this is the first part of, of the response to what you've just said, which is kind of really effectively adulthood as a sort of prison. But we started off with, you know, fairy tales, folk tales, fables, riddles, songs, lullabies, lullabies, rhymes. Mm -hmm. 
you know, this magical world of, of communication about children and for children. And in, in many ways, our great imaginative uh, literary cultures all stem out of that mindset, you know, that fantastically rich, fertile ground. And I think if we look at Jung's idea of, of the uh, collective unconscious, that in many ways, the best parts of it have a kind of childlike sense of wonder, both in beauty and also darkness and horror, you know, terror and, and violence and a whole range of, of just churning things. But then we move, and this is a very interesting thing in terms of uh, children's literature, we move into the world of alphabet books and primers and allegories, often religious or socially moral, uh, you know, advice. Um, and I was, I was doing, you know, John Newber, who um, the Newbery Award, you know, for children's, he is credited with writing the first modern book uh, for kids, a little pretty pocketbook intended for the amusement of little master Tommy and pretty Miss Polly with two letters from Jack the Giant Killer. I love that last part. Um, mm -hmm. I, I always know Jack the Giant Killer from, from King Lear, you know, which is mm -hmm. where uh, Edgar, who's uh, trying to you know pretend he's mad, that's where fee-fi-fo-fum, I smell the blood of a British man, comes from. So it's a really weird world of, of communications to children that gradually turns up the volume of moral, social, grid-like teaching, uh, mm -hmm. where it really is teaching. It's, it's not just entertainment and, and great stories and strange characters and imaginative play. It, it's learning the alphabet. It's dealing with multiplication tables, and it's about courtesy and manners and ethics. And it becomes, you know, a pretty intense kind of program um, and then we have, you know, this amazing kickback with Lewis Carroll, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, Kipling, Jack London, Louisa May Alcott, you know, Twain, uh, Joel, uh, Joel Chandler Harris, Ellen uh, Montgomery, um, L. Frank Baum, you know, the, the Wizard of Oscars, Dr. Doolittle, Seuss, Sendak. You know, there's a whole confusion of tremendously interesting things. For children and and a real sense of magic and then there is this moralistic uh well puritanical uh, approach put down so it that's one of the confusions that i think is informing the childhood uh, experience and it's of course what psychologists tell us is one of the sources of adult neuroses you know mm-hmm mm-hmm that is, yeah. So there's this movement then from childhoods. I guess a good way to look at it might be to think about how children actually tell stories. And I have firsthand experience with this because my mother is currently uh, watching my three-year-old niece while my sister is away uh, at, at Naval Intelligence School. It's incredible. It's 13 weeks. I've, you know, I didn't realize that you had to be away that long to learn how to be an intelligence officer in the Navy. But, who knows? <laughs> but when you, so she is essentially always lying, right? She's always telling stories. She'll 
she comes up to me and she tells me stories about her dog that they have back at the house and that the dog's name is Kalua. Well, Kalua is, is my name or my dog's name, not my name. <laughs> it's my, it's my dog's name. Uh, she tells me that, you know, her dog Kalua tried to get into the pantry and eat chips. Well, that's what she tries to do. She tries to, you know, go grab a bag of chips. And then she told Kalua no, but then, you know, grandma came in and saw that Kalua had taken the chips and blamed her. So it's this meandering story that really doesn't have much of a point and it's fascinating to listen to because you just kind of see where her mind goes. She's making this up as she goes along. And then like you said, once you start watching uh, programs for children, she was watching this show called Coco Melon, and it's teaching you little things like how to say, excuse me, when you bump into somebody, or how to, you know, how to be polite to people, how to sing the ABCs, but it's, everything sort of begins to have a point. And now I'm beginning, so this is actually... This is very interesting now because this is messing with my initial standpoint or hypothesis about the difference between childhood and adulthood. So I had it in my mind, specifically when it comes to uh, adults who do things like collect Funko Pops or have an obsession with comic books, right? There's a, my father was a very distant man, but he loved to watch Saturday morning cartoons and I remember being a kid and seeing my dad, you know, watching Dexter's Laboratory or whatever, and feeling a sense of of, like, of revulsion, which more than likely came from a feeling of neglect, right? Of the cartoons being sort of in some way chosen over me. So I wonder if that doesn't inform my current disdain for people, for grown adults who do things like watch watch cartoons, because... The track that we're going along here is that there's something not necessarily intentionally insidious about the formation of childhood stories from kind of pure imagination and, uh, you know, going where they might lead non-linearity, right, into even things like having a beginning, middle, and an end. That Even that itself is beginning to structure the way that children uh, perceive things like time, isn't it? Absolutely it is. And I, I, I think with uh, a degree of, of real intent, and I think the real problem <coughs> is that when communications become, you know, so explicitly rhetorical or informational, you know, right. uh, and, and, and this gets imposed on kids, you know, it at a very, very early stage, because it's, of course, all evaluated, vetted, and, and created by adults, um, which is a very, very weird um, group of people who are involved in, you know, early childhood education. And I don't mean weird in a negative sense. I mean, it's just a distinctive, uh, well, it, it's, it could be seen as a contradiction in terms. Um, you know, it, it, it's certainly a stretch and it, it goes to the question of, well, where is the childhood connection in these people um, to be thinking in terms of, of childhood education? Um, but here's, uh, here's a couple of, of, of philosophical sort of uh, backgrounds that I realize uh, greatly informed 
the idea of, of, of childhood in that transitional state, you know, the, the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution through to modernity really kicking in. And I realize, and, and this might be a question to sort of think about with, with young Gus, you know, mm -hmm. John Locke, John Locke was such a strange, I mean, I love that John Locke influenced uh, Tristram Shandy, Lawrence Stern's mm -hmm. Tristram Shandy, which I think is the ultimate postmodern novel. And I love this description of, I, Locke is described in his biography as like many philosophers, he had a minimum of personal history. I think that's just, I think that's like, you know. That's great. My goal is to have like a maximum of personal history. But anyway, uh, you know, he, he is credited with the idea of, of thinking of the childhood state, the child developing mind as a tabula rasa, you know, the blank slate. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think that that's at all right. I, I just think that's, that's the argument for pure nurture, you know, that you're just kind of a complete, um, and, and, and you don't see that already about, I mean, you, you see personality and character already in Gus, don't you? Oh, absolutely. I'm glad that you brought that up because today was a very momentous occasion. Gus is 76 days old, which doesn't mean anything. It's, there's no milestones involved in that. His 11-week uh, birthday, quote-unquote, is tomorrow. But none of that's important. What's important is that kind of from the moment Gus came out of the womb, which I witnessed, one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen, he has been, um, with all love for my child, he's been a screaming potato, right? Um, and, and he has recently begun to smile and, uh, a few days ago, the most beautiful thing happened where he began to laugh, where his coos began to resemble laughter and he was laughing at me, uh, kind of hooting like a monkey, right? I was kind of fake laughing and going like, hoo, 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 hoo. And he began to just find that absolutely hilarious so a few days pass and he's been smiling and he's been you know we've been setting him up on his feet and letting him you know we hold him for support but allowing him to kind of balance himself and start to understand how to stand up and things like that and a, a complete change happened i was watching my wife holding my son and i was looking at him this evening before we recorded this and i saw a person right mm, that's what i'm talking and, about yeah yeah that that that's exactly what you're talking about and that's that's exactly what happened to me and it is a it is it's it's a it's not he's not a blank slate you know he's he's got thoughts and opinions and there is a sense through all of his cooing and hooting and giggling and 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 noise making whether it's positive or negative that he's trying to get opinions across about things opinions that i i can't have put on him yet well see i think this is very interesting because it it Locke was not alone in his, his thinking about this. The other big influence from a different perspective, but it, it, it reinforces everything that we've been talking about in this episode, is, is uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, you know, mm -hmm. who, who gave us 
some really difficult uh, ideas that, that unfortunately got an enormous amount of traction. The whole noble savage and that, uh, you know, that man or humanity is, you know, is free, but society has put us in chains. I mean, these are all relatively modern ideas that really penetrated uh, the whole European Western cultured mindset to, I think, enormous detriment. I mean, I think I certainly think that of Rousseau. I think that Locke was simply wrong about the tabula rasa. I, I, I don't understand where that idea comes from. My only theory is that people who uh, took part in that idea might have done so for class reasons that they were simply not in touch with their young children. They had wet nurses. In other words, they were rich people who were distant from a lot of, of basic facts mm. of life. I think Any that's cases, possible. Yeah. I think that's mm -hmm. possible. But already with Rousseau, we're getting to this idea of that very 1960s idea of, of it's the system, break out of the system, kick the habit, you know, get off the grid. We're all in chains. And to, you know, to come back to your point of adulthood being a kind of of a prison and when it should be, of course, just, you know, the, the you know, increasing freedom. That That's what we we really mean. I mean, if Gus is, is just now learning, you know, the principles of standing up which we all had to go through, um, the suggested evolution, the developmental vector is to is toward increasing independence, flexibility, right. freedom, yep. adaptability. And yet mm -hmm. we're somehow saying that's not the case. And mm -hmm. I, I think we can say that there are some uh, very clear reasons why. And, and they define their ways of looking at the modern age uh, that really shed light on the whole program. Um, mm -hmm. we, we can see that, that increasingly young people have a lack of extended family, older neighbors, a network, a sense of community. You know, we oftentimes can mm -hmm. live next door to people and never know their names. Right. People, young people are sequestered by age. Far more than I was growing up. I'm seeing this more and more. Mm -hmm. Hypnotized by technology. Well, we're all in that boat. But for for young people, that, that's all they've known. And I mean mm -hmm. technology in the sense of the, the computer age, the internet, uh, right. the iPhone. Bombarded by advertising and celebrated as customers. I think yeah. this is mm -hmm. this is really getting to the heart of it. What makes us really feel anxious? I wrote this down myself. That I, I thought, mm -hmm. well, I'm I'm concerned about um, fraud and stolen identity. I'm concerned about technology issues of constantly having to update. And mm -hmm. there's always the question of of money. There's so many cool things that we want, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. So the, that's informing the experience to an enormous extent which you can look back only, you know, well, 75 years ago, that was not the same, you know? It right. was absolutely not the same. Mm -hmm. And I can't even imagine uh, what Gus's generation is going to be exposed oh. to, you know? Dude, dude, I was in Target this weekend with my nephew who is eight, 
I lived with my niece and nephew for three years in El Paso, and I, I very much love this boy. He's he's a great kid. Uh, completely obsessed with video games, though, which now that I have a PlayStation, we have something to talk about. Um, but so we're walking through Target, and my mother had left her cell phone at uh, my mother-in-law's house and asked me to bring it along with me to return it to her. So I said, okay, we'll meet you at four o'clock in the baby section. And so the kid and I are walking around Rios and my niece are off looking at clothes or what have you. And my, my son is at home with his grandma, my mother-in-law. And I tell my nephew that we're going to meet her at four. And he said, well, is she going to text you? And I said, well, no, I, I have her phone here. And I said, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, if you were going to meet somebody somewhere, you agreed on a time and you showed up there and he looked at me with this look of complete puzzlement. <laughs> and he said, but, but how do you know the, how do you know that they're going to be there? And I said, you didn't. You had, to, you had to trust that they were going to do the thing that they said they were going to do. So that's to your point there about how technology is influencing all this. But, you know, I keep going back to toys, and I'm sorry that I keep going here, but it's a real bugbear of mine, and I'm trying to get to the heart of it now, right? But you mentioned a turn of phrase that I thought was really good there, but, you know, the valued consumer, right? That as an adult, you become... Um, you know, your, your self-worth depends on how much stuff you can, you can buy. And I guess that for, from my perspective, as somebody who looks at story and storytelling as a sacred art um, that should be, you know, taken with as serious a sense of play as you possibly can, the kind of strict, regimented, uh, price-tagged creativity that we see these days that is put into toys that are meant strictly for consumption um, kind of puts an art that I hold dear on uh, as just another, you know, bar on the black iron prison, I guess, that we're all sort of stuck in, right? Adulthood is it used to be just about getting up and going to work because if you didn't, you could, you might potentially not be able to feed your family. And thank goodness that we have not necessarily completely moved past that, but it, I would say the working conditions are better than they were in the early 20th and 19th centuries. I think that's, that's definitely fair to say. But the powers that be, the Archons, have to supplant it with something, and of course what they supplanted that with was the, the putting status upon an ever-increasing collection of trash and junk right? And so stories suddenly become vectors. They become advertising commercials, don't they? They, they? they lose their ability, broadly speaking, to to tell new and interesting stories, right? To have a kind of sense of play. I wonder if anybody really has, has fun organizing their Marvel Avenger figures on their desks, or is that just something now that you have to dust every week or so well it becomes a question doesn't it i think this is the very strange uh aspect of of the modern age that uh it, it keeps uh rearing its you know its heads 
<laughs> it has so many heads. It just keeps appearing all the time. And I think that, uh, you know, one of the problems, uh, one of the great, you know, words of our time is identity, you know, great anxiety on multiple levels, you know, multiple levels. And one of the, the aspects that is emerging as, as sort of the only solid ground for identity is algorithms of one's purchases, yeah. you know? I mean, you, you yeah. look at a list of that. You look at a, you know, you get a, a, an AI system analyzing all of your receipts, all of your purchases for three months, and you've got a profile of yourself that may be more valid and and useful than any other perspective you can get, which is really uh, it's frightening. It's disturbing. It's, it is disturbing. It is disturbing, um, and it's kind of um, it's unequivocal. I mean, I really think it's hard to argue with that. You know, we started talking about the the problems with with research data, but I think that when you look at the cold hard truth of of basic algorithms about consumer purchase, that's a little bit more difficult to get around. You know, it's too mm-hmm. straightforward, and right. it, it it's not making any rhetorical claims either way. Mm-hmm. It's just saying, look, you know, here it is. Uh, and it's it to go back to you know uh, when we've talked about tarot readings, it's a very straight tarot reading. You know, it's just it's not embellishing anything. It's really just looking at it in in cold hard truth. So we're kind of bringing ourselves down to the algorithm level by this endless sort of participation in a, in a view of adulthood, which we've said you know earlier is dependent on uh, a strange psychological disorder of cultural nostalgia which another way to think of that i think is is a, a kind of drug addiction you know i think that addiction oh, yeah. is the model oh, for yeah. all of these things mm-hmm. um and and that's a very disturbing idea of then of of the childhood development uh right. but you know you think about it i mean I remember distinctly uh, and completely independent of any sexual awareness, but, but kind of in the same time frame, there was this whole sort of anxiety about drugs, that strangers would introduce drugs. And in fact, they did. My stepbrother and I got dosed with LSD when we were, you know, like 10 and 11 on Telegraph Avenue. Oh, we didn't goodness know. Goodness gracious. Yeah, it was quite. It was quite bizarre. It, fortunately, it turned out much better than it could have. But I mean, other than that, I mean, no strangers were offering me drugs. You know, they were saying like yeah. maybe pay for it. But that was a little bit later. But I think it, it's a very, very strange model to look at the the growth mm-hmm. in every capacity: physical, emotional, mm-hmm. psychological. The growth from, say, Gus's stage to your stage as being one of, of addiction, you know, increasing addiction to things. That, that to me, is an enormously disturbing idea. And I, I, don't, I don't entirely accept that. But I think that is a model that the commercial forces in our in human experience, they really do try to make that happen. You know, oh, a hundred percent, and it makes me think maybe by way of reference, if you think about a society that 
predates ours, which is difficult to do because hierarchies have existed for for so long in our in our not in human history but in our recent you know agricultural society history there has been a you know a caste of royals and a caste of slaves and if we were to think though of a hypothetical group of hominids living together childhood would be marked by uh, physical weakness and the need for protection from actual, you know, from the elements, from predators, from things like that. But, you know, loosely speaking, a childhood would be spent perhaps playing, but also probably learning the ins and outs of how the particular hunter-gatherer group worked uh, so that, you know, as they got older, they would be successful hunters or basket weavers or you know, eventually farmers or what have you, right? And what's interesting about this idea of the invention of childhood is that the invention of childhood implies that, you know, that there's, you know, an invention of adulthood as well, right? And that invention of adulthood came along with, again, it might predate industrial society, but I'll just keep it to that because, you know, because it's the most recent frame of reference that we have. And so, so yeah, so all of a sudden you have this, this, you know, this category of the child that may or may not have existed beforehand, but that is a sort of training ground for how to be a junkie, right? How right. to be a proper junkie. Right. And, and, and that is incredibly, incredibly dark, right? But I guess it can't always be not dark that's that's you know the yin and the yang right but um but i really like i was about to say i really like that as a model i don't like it but it feels disturbingly true to me well i think that's the way to put it i mean i think none of us should be happy with that at all because why should we be happy by with any kind of model or paradigm imposed on something as personal and immediate as our own lives. Uh, I mean that that's not going to be something we're we're going to you know get with. But it it does have an, a really unfortunate ring of truth for me, and it explains uh, it, as crude a model as it is. You know, there's nothing uh, sort of more unfortunate than a really crude model that actually works and actually explains things. But it, I think it really is true. I think, I think the consumer model uh, is as good a shorthand for the psychological experience of the modern age as there can be. I don't think it's the only causal factor. I think that modernity has a lot of other interesting things to look at, but I, I think that we can never uh, negate or, or really minimize even uh, the effect of, of what the commercial reality is and how deep that is. And, you know, you, you can go back in, in time and look at, you know, whether it's the Thousand and One Nights or, you know, all of, of great ancient literature coming out of oral traditions. There's always a concern about money. I mean, it's in the Bible. It's in, you know, Greek mythology. It's in African mythology. It's everywhere. But yeah. we mean something different when the idea of, of a consumer and the idea of an addict uh, and, and the 
inescapability of the commercial grid that, that defines the modern age. I mean, I really think that there's something very different about that. But I, I want to get back um, to the other aspect, because we, we've said that, of course, childhood involves time, and we mean growth. We mean time in societal terms of how someone is treated differently. We did say, we've talked now sort of about uh, the popular culture influence and, and how that is indistinguishable from the consumer uh, growth. You sort of grow up the consumer ranks, you know, it's kind of like a weird scouting program. You get different levels of merit badge, you know. Yeah. Um, but always there, there, there is still that main deciding line of, of sex and sexuality, that, that movement, um, which we don't, you know, recognize. We said that, that one of the things that the great wisdoms of indigenous culture is their ability to integrate that, you know, evolution within individuals, you know, and to acknowledge that within the community that, you know, you are a man now, you are a woman now. Um, I mean, they use those those terms. And we we really have reluctance on any level now, not just the, the genderization of it, but uh, we're not sure about what the, you know, where maturity really begins. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it might be interesting now to introduce this, uh, a little excerpt from Graham Greene's review uh, which is of the movie Wee Willie Winky, which I think is hilarious. Uh, I don't know if that kind of title would get through now. Um, nothing about a Wee Willie, you know. Um, but this is about... Uh, Graham Greene got into a lot of trouble with this. He actually got sued, and I believe had to cough up 500 pounds. I may be wrong about that, but that would have been a lot of money then. Um, but Shirley Temple was, you know, a kind of icon of, of movie culture. She's now crossed that line where she's no longer the little girl, the little child star, the ultimate child star, if you will. You know, mm-hmm. um, I remember Shirley Temple uh, was a, you know, a cocktail, a non-alcoholic cocktail for kids. She was an icon, but in, in, she's now growing up and she's all grown up according to Mr. Green and uh, here, here's what he said that got, got him into trouble. The owners of a child star are like leaseholders. Their property diminishes in value every year. Miss Shirley Temple's case, though, has peculiar interest. Infancy is her disguise. Her appeal is more secret an adult. Already two years ago, she was a fancy little piece. Real childhood, I think, went out after the movie The Littlest Rebel. In Captain January, she wore trousers with the mature suggestiveness of a Dietrich. Her neat and well-developed rump twisted in the tap dance. Her eyes had a sidelong, searching, coquette quality. Now, in Wee Willie Winky, wearing short kilts, she is completely totsy. 
where watching her swagger across the Indian barracks square, hear the gasp of excited expectation from her antique audience when the sergeant's palm is raised. Watch the way she measures a man with agile studio eyes with dimpled depravity. Isn't that wild? I, I, well, oh my God, that that was very uncomfortable for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's just, I mean, that is psychotic from so many different levels. I mean, I love Graham Greene's uh, I too. pro stuff. Yeah. Yeah. He's often a real sort of deal here. But, I mean, imagine the dilemma of Shirley Temple moving from this overly darling mega child star, you know, someone who uh, kept America's morale up during dark years. And then she goes through puberty and gets a figure and wants a career and has talent and is trying to transition. But she's trying to mature in a culture without initiation rights and with an audience of millions you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it does make me think that we're really missing something by not having some sort of initiatory experience for people to go through, right? Because what we're really talking about with Shirley Temple's um, situation here is one that we witness in pop culture, I think, on an almost daily basis because now places like the Disney Channel churn out a Shirley Temple or, you know, maybe not quite as popular because of their ubiquity, but they churn out one of these, you know, it feels like every week, right? And it's, a you know, a person who's on one of these shows that are, you know, it always turns out that these shows are run by sort of real creeps, right? Um and then you know, and then they be they become adults, and it feels like uh, the culture at large doesn't quite know how to handle it. They all sort of become these Graham Greens in a sense, although you know, with the language updated for for twenty twenty one, right? But it's kind of this 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 sort of inability to reconcile the the what has been on film for for years and years with the current uh, iteration of this particular star. And it it does speak to a lack of transitory rights, you know what I mean? Of a kind of switch getting flipped in the general consciousness of the consumer or the audience, in this case, uh, of being being able to handle this kind of thing with a, a bit more grace than that. I, I, man, I believe in free speech, but that's, uh, I can see why he got sued for that because it's just, it's, it's a rough entry. You know what I mean? (laughs) I think that's the way to put it. I I, I think it's very indelicate. I I think what the Mm -hmm. point that he's making, uh, the subtext for it is that there is a kind of play on sexuality from this uh, this actor who mm-hmm. we're not used to having we, we're not used to seeing that from her and there there is a kind of uh, strange thing that goes on 
you know, I, I saw, I was, I was over, you know, at, at my Walgreens just walking in the other day and there was a, a little girl, I don't know, I, I think she would have been about six or seven. I, 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 would, I would assume going to elementary school, but she had on a little tiny top, uh, mm -hmm. bright pink, and it in, in white letters it said HOT, H-A-W-T. And I don't know, that caught my eye, and I thought, I don't think that's a good, I don't think I'd have that on my six-year-old daughter. Um, right, right. And yeah. I, I, I think this is all part of this churning confusion of not so much even the modern age now, but I think a very contemporary confusion where we are saying one thing and doing another. And mm -hmm. I, I think that's kind of where I would like to see this topic evolving into to next episode, where we look at a few other examples where we are saying, you know, in anthropology terms, every culture has an official, you know, perspective, point of view, customs, traditions, rules, and then they have the unofficial, which is, you know, it's connotation and denotation, right? Mm -hmm. We say one thing, but this is the reality. I, I think we could evolve the invention of childhood theme into that larger uh, ecosystem for next episode um, to look at a few sort of other examples where we have an official you know, societal position, but yet in fact the reality is very conflicted. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is, I think, a way of understanding cultural psychology. It's, I mean, where, what is personal neuroses? Uh, they're about, uh, well, Freud said their secrets we're keeping from ourselves. The other thing is that it's cognitive dissonance, which we entertain. We manage mm -hmm. to try to maintain two conflicting points of view and, and then to also say well we're not conflicted oh no there's nothing there's yeah, no confliction right, here right, right. I, I, right. I, 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 i'm completely under control you know yeah and and yeah, that's a good jimmy stewart by the way um yeah you know but um, but i think i think also um why what you're saying is important is because if you think of initiation rights as an introduction into maturity and you know this is the moment that you become an adult one of the problems of not having an initiation right is that people don't quote unquote grow up. And I think we've we've kind of talked about that in a more nuanced way. But the problem cuts both ways, right? And your example of being at the store the other day speaks to that, right? Because then without the initiation rights, it's not just that childhood bleeds into adulthood, to use modern terms, but that adulthood bleeds backwards into childhood as well. Like the ele the elements of it that we think are pretty strictly for adults suddenly hit a six or a seven year old right and you end up with a very uh, in my opinion inappropriate and uncomfortable scenario right not to sound too much like a conservative dad here but <laughs> I but I but I don't like that kind of stuff I don't think a lot of people like that kind of stuff and again it's because there's no there's no culturally agreed upon point that certain things i think become uh you know more of more of the norm does that make sense what i'm saying there? well it does make sense and i think it's a good place to uh you know to suggest where we'll head next time i mean we're really in reinforcing the importance of ceremony in a broad sense 
of rites of passage, rites of, of, of evolution. And when we when with those break down within any culture with a lowercase c, things start to fall apart. And I think this is the key of, of, of where we can rebuild, uh, if we can, insofar as we can as individuals, rebuild a stronger sense of, of magical community and integration with a larger uh, society. It, it, we've got to instill some frameworks, some milestones, some some basis for possible agreement. Because I think one of the reasons why we have so much disagreement today is that we don't have any basis for possible agreement. We don't have these ritual ceremonial uh, frameworks and, and too many uh, strange ideas that don't have a frame to fit in. And, and people are just mm-hmm. kind of floating stuff. So they have weird T-shirts, weird stick, you know, weird beliefs. And mm-hmm. uh, well, some of those are really ne- are good. They need to be aired, and they need to have a chance. And then some need mm-hmm. to be filtered out. Um, yeah, yeah. I think I think a ritual that comes to mind. I don't want to get too much into the stuff that we're going to talk about, but just for my own reference, so that we can have a starting point for next time. But the the Mexican ritual of the quinceanera comes to mind, right? as an actual kind of ceremony party type thing that I don't think exists for boys, but I could be wrong. I need to do more research before I speak on that. Good thing I have a whole extended family that I can talk to. About exactly. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. But uh, okay. So we're going to make our transition then over to the paid Patreon uh, segment of the show. Thanks so much for people who have been joining us there we surpassed 100 dollars last week or this this current week so that is an exciting milestone and we are steadily gaining at a rate of about two or three people a week so we're doing great and we would love to see you over there chris what are we going to talk about over there uh well we've got some really interesting things to pick up and we're, we're picking up on our whole uh, ghost radio uh, paradigm and looking at vibes and tuning and frequencies and resonance between people. Uh, the idea of, of being inhabited by archetypes. Uh, we're looking at the principle of oscillation, which is a big idea that we rolled out. Uh, and it really is uh, something to to engage with. It's going to be an idea that informs uh, the continuing discussion. We're going to finish off a, a, a look at uh, the symbolism involved of uh, the tarot um, and the idea of the tarot as a psychomagical machine or a kind of artificial intelligence for dealing with uh, the ecosystem of archetypes, the Jungian ecosystem of archetypes and how to navigate through that. So there's some interesting uh and not surprising blend of some physics metaphors with some Jungian mm-hmm. psychological metaphors uh, in pursuit of our new anthropology and an integration of a refined idea of animist magic with the best of what science really promises to be. Excellent. And I think we'll probably start the show with some of that practical advice that we mentioned at the top of this show. Yeah, um, and I am go- I'm going to hold over my dreams now until the the paywall section because I think they're they're pretty rich. So I'm sorry to our our listeners of part 1, but I I I've, I've 
Yeah, I've made a kind of uh, executive personal decision there that I think that some of I this, like it. the I practical like it. advice the and the dreams, yeah, we we're, we want you over on the other side. Yeah, yeah. This side is a lot of fun. Uh, the way Chris and I conceive of it as th- there's two threads going on here, too, and this one is uh, much more seems to be focused on kind of... Uh, well, culture, I mean, we're just kind of continuing the conversation that we've been doing for the past 43 episodes, I want to say. Um, but the second part, not to denigrate the first part, but the second part is where uh, I get really excited about a lot of the stuff that we're uh, talking about. Because th- that feels just like a real project, you know, like a real helpful kind of almost life's work project that's beginning. Um, so, Yeah. I don't think that's hyping it up too much. I think that's exactly what we're doing. So come on over and join us behind the paywall. But all right, Chris, I'll see you on the other side. Okay, take care. Thanks, everyone. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Patreon bonus half of No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, you still doing all right? Phone all charged? I am. I am. Uh, My good groove is intact. Excellent. Cool. I didn't derail it with my sour mood. No, I, I did notice a little bit of, uh, I wouldn't say, you're, you're never in a sour mood, uh, but but I, I think an, an interesting uh, angle for, uh, for part one, and uh, I, I think one way to think of the distinction between our free-to-air part one episodes and, and what we're pursuing there and what we're hoping to uh, accomplish uh, in this segment is, is a distinction between uh, a, a kind of critique of, of modernity, what we mean by the modern age in part one. We're, we're analyzing, we're dissecting, we're interrogating, uh, we're, we're breaking things apart to try to find uh, some, some key essences that maybe have escaped or that would give us some clues to to, for all of us to help navigate a, a bit more mm-hmm. effectively this, this very confusing uh, era in humanity. But with part two, um, we really get our good groove in, in, in shape. And I think we're really building something here uh, or, or searching for something. This is kind of an expedition party. Uh, mm-hmm. But, it, but mm-hmm. it, there, there's um, a positive slant on it in the sense that, that we really think that we can find some things even if they're just small things, um, right. you know, it, it doesn't have to be a, a big thing. I over my birthday, I, I bought this little. I can hold it in my hand. It's just a beautiful uh, carved bear from soapstone. It's a Zuni <laughs> fetish, a bear fetish, which uh, will tie in with our ongoing theme tonight of, of archetypes, and uh, we're going to speak again about the uh, the tarot uh, arcana, those major figures symbolically and uh, narratively. Uh, But the Zuni bear fetish is uh, associated with mental strength and focus, the capacity Mm. for healing and decisive action. So I I got this little bit. It's just wonderful to hold. And I I keep him on my desk uh, by the door. So when Mm -hmm. I get my keys and my wallet going out, He's always waiting for me. And I think to myself, if I'm going to leave my house, I, I want my Zuni bear fetish with me, you know? Um, right. 
So I think there's, there's uh, you know, that kind of, of sense of, of going out looking for things in, in this segment behind the paywall. And we thank very much our subscribers. It's very, very important to us uh, to have that sense of community. And uh, we hope that the journey we go on together will be of continuing interest to you. I, I think it will be. I've got I, confidence. I have the utmost confidence because no matter how bad my mood is, I can't stay in a bad mood when I talk to you. It's just so infectious, <laughs> you know? And also, two things. First thing, I am putting a Zuni bear fetish in my eBay cart right now because I love these little things. I was looking at them as you were talking. These they're great. I love I love it. And we have a bear theme for Gus in his, you know, his clothes, his bedroom. It's a lot of bears because my name uh, actually means bear god. Uh, it's, a, it's a Norse. It Oz, does too. Osbjorn. It does too. Um, Absolutely. You're right. I just realized that. Well so done. I So I love this. And secondly, I really, really, really love the <clears throat> explanation you have there for the first part of the show and the second part of the show. We'll probably repeat that for the first part next week so that they're aware of it too. But I love that kind of line of demarcation that we put down there. Um, because I do think that it's important to kind of uh, to separate those those two things, the critique and the sort of prescription for, for what exactly to do. And I've always seen this second half since we started it five episodes ago as, a, like you said, like a surge party. Like we're looking for different ways of being. This is going to be where we put the practical advice and where we kind of talk about how to do things like build community and how to look at things like animism and magic and stuff like that. And and the, the first part might seem a bit more freewheeling, but what we're really trying to do is you can't have a prescription without a diagnosis, right? Uh, right. And that's kind of what we're looking for. It's not complaining. We're not just going to complain about stuff. Oh, this sucks. This sucks. We hate this. We hate this. We're really, we really want to get to the heart of, of what exactly is going on you know why do people wake up every morning with this impending sense of dread and that everything is going wrong well we're going to find out or we're going to try to find out anyway and then we're going to try to give some answers and i am just as excited about that as i hope our listeners are so on that note where would you like to pick up this discussion today. Okay. All right. Well, well said. Well said. I, I think we'll begin with just uh, a reinforcement of some key terms that we're using. Uh, we've got an, an overall paradigm, which is broadcast related radio, uh, a, a magical medium, if there ever was one, and a key sort of demarcation point in the evolution of, of, of modernity. Uh, but we've got terms like vibes, and tuning and frequencies and resonance. And we've spoken about how those work in a very, very uh, accepted metaphorical way. But last uh, episode, we really looked at, at, at the practical, tangible realities of that. We spoke about the anthropologist Edward T. Hall actually documenting groups of people in in really forensic slow motion video and still photography terms and and s seeing how people physically 
tune and syncopate with each other. And we have excellent examples of that in terms of uh, the more distanced world of, of language. And to some extent, language is itself the ultimate radio mechanism. I mean, it requires a transmitter and a receiver, uh, an oscillation process back and forth. Oscillation was one of the key terms that we, we introduced and we will continue to use it because it's a very powerful tool. It's inherently dynamic. It is inherently about an energy exchange. And we opened up with the notion in very practical terms, and we continue to recommend this. Have a look at breaking nouns out of the static artifact category of a thing and thinking of them more in terms of a verb, an action, a dynamic process. If you do do that as a discipline, uh, we can guarantee that there will be a change in perspective. It, it's, it's empowering. Uh, because nouns are finished, you know, they're kind of done, the process is over. Whereas the oscillation idea, the world as verb, Buckminster Fuller said, I seem to be a verb. You know, we all need to think of ourselves that way. And we need to think of the world more in terms of verbs rather than nouns. Yes. And this takes us back to the origins of language and the indigenous mindset that we have been talking about in part one, but it, it, it's continually important here. We then looked at uh, a, a way of, of trying to process this ultimate radio signal, which we're calling the, the ghost radio signal. And we're saying that's synonymous with culture with a capital C. And our hypothesis... Um, if that's not too pretentious a word, but our starting premise is that culture with a capital C is a kind of animating force, whether we think of that as an energy field like unto the accepted fields of physics or a kind of ecosystem or perhaps some kind of uh, alternative, let's say, not alien entity, uh, but something that informs uh, enfolds and broadcasts to the human mind uh, that, that consciousness can't be entirely explained as an epiphenomenon of neurochemical activity in, you know, entrapped in our skulls. That, that just, there's too many things that don't fit into that model. But we were looking at the idea of characters, both from a mythological, literary, artistic sense, right down to people that we know. Uh, people that we see day to day. We're all characters in each other's lives. We have, uh, we may be all the characters in our dreams. But looking at those as, as some sort of psychic method of, of navigating a much larger ecosystem of, of archetypal possibilities. And, and we spoke about character having two related sides to it. One is this sort of psychic entity that, that inhabits us or can inhabit us. I mean, we have that idea in many religions about the spirit coming upon us in, in say, uh, Vudun, which is derived from the Yoruba religions of West Africa. We have a very strong sense of people being taken over by, by spirits, a pantheon of spirits. And, and David spoke about the, the a very simple practical thing of not being angry, 
but being possessed by the spirit of anger, for instance. Mm -hmm. Notice just how thinking about that in language terms changes the concept. The other idea of of character, which which, uh, is in terms of of hieroglyph and symbol, and and you can see that we get to the, the real meat of the problem with language just in that dichotomy. Of, of psychic entity concept, what a strange concept a concept is, you know? Mm. I mean, there was a time <laughs> yeah. when, when, when that didn't exist, right? Uh-huh. And then we have this visual symbol, which takes us back to the magic, the ancient magic of the caves, you know, in, in Southern Europe, in Africa, in Australia, in the Philippines, we're fine, you know, all around the world. And all around me, there are these fabulous petroglyph cultures that are still fairly, you know, old in our terms. So we've got these two, uh, it's not a binary opposition at all. It's a strange uh, sort of metaphysical marriage of concept and symbol that are constantly oscillating backwards and forwards. Uh, I mean, I would suggest that you can't really have an idea of any kind of character as in, Uh, some sort of personification in your mind without having some sort of visualization of it. So it finds symbolic form and conceptual form, and it's constantly oscillating backwards and forwards. And I think that is a way of looking at uh, the the tarot uh, of, of, I mean, if you had no tarot cards in front of you, I don't think it would be nearly as interesting. I think the idea is phenomenally interesting, but I think it needs the visual reality of the yes. figures drawn. I think that's a very important. I mean, I, that, that there are two things going on there. One is I think it's just a beautiful contribution to the world of visual art, just all on its own. And I'm thinking of a whole range of them. You know, the A.E. Waite ones, uh, Dollies. You know, there's some... There are great, there are people who collect different, you know, tarot cards purely from a visual arts history point of view. And, and I could absolutely see that. I've often thought as in, you know, wearing my visual arts hat of creating my own uh, alternative uh, deck, at least the major arcana. So I think it, we, we should maybe just, uh, we're, we're never going to entirely finish with the tarot and the I Ching and some of these fabulous systems of uh, psychic navigation. Um, but maybe just to wind that forward a little bit, David, because you uh, have a great deal of knowledge about the tarot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we can maybe just kick this off with a little bit more look at, I mean, we, we left with this definition. The tarot is a psychomagical machine, ecosystem, or perhaps even a kind of artificial intelligence or alien intelligence, if you will. Let's say alternative intelligence for dealing with uh, the archetypal ecosystem, which is related to the collective unconsciousness of, of Jung. Um, it's related to our idea of the ghost radio signal. It is that that mystery realm that this expedition party is uh, partying down in. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it also deals with this subject of oscillation that I've been thinking about a lot. 
So a property of oscillation, in my mind, uh, deals with it on the quantum level of something being able to essentially inhabit all aspects of its being at once until it is kind of enfolded down by the observer into one single idea, which of course from that one single idea can become many ideas, but as a working framework, I think that's that's really good. So thinking about the tarot with its relationship to archetypes and characters and how those oscillate between the very concrete and the very metaphorical, I think that when you sit down to do a tarot spread, you have something in mind and you are shuffling cards and you're dealing with randomness and you're dealing with um, maybe not so randomness at times, but when you put a spread down, all of those oscillating archetypes that are swirling around your being in this web that we speak of, all of a sudden they are very kind of rigidly snapped into place. So I would also like to put forward that the tarot is a methodology for uh, temporarily concretizing uh, the archetypes that are about us, and also uh, a kind of a kind of language. In the first part of this episode, you brought up the idea that you know the the thoughts that we can think are sort of constrained by the languages that we can that we can speak. And I think that when you pick up the tarot, it is a <clears throat> a kind of wordless language that allows for a lot of lateral thinking. So it's great for people, I think, who have a sort of um, more systemic, material-minded ways of thinking. I think it's a great way to kind of break out of that. But I think that what's important from uh, for the tarot, rather, is, again, this idea that as we sort of walk around and we are inhabited by these different archetypes or spirits or whatever you want to call them, there is a kind of sense that this is all random and that we're at the mercy of these different characters that are coming and going. And what I think the tarot does, at least temporarily, is set down a path that we can begin walking on by collapsing this quantum field into a very concrete spread. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And I I think that that using the verb uh, to concrete, to make concrete, Mm -hmm. is is a very, very helpful term. I I think that... uh, Concrete needs to be uh, revitalized relative to the abstract because I think that's a binary that gets in a lot of people's way. I think there's much more compatibility and symbiosis and synergy between those than opposition. And the other thing that it it looks at is uh, concrescence, this, this convergence idea which Terence McKenna, that was one of the terms that he used. He actually uh, derived that from Alfred North Whitehead, but I think it's a very helpful way of thinking about um, what vehicles like the tarot, and and there there are many others, um, 
what they're seeking to do. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also very interesting that there is a kind of a human tendency or it's not exactly a craving. It's certainly not a craving in everyone. But I think we have a natural attraction in a physical gravity, gravitational sort of sense. We're, we're drawn towards the a concrete expression of the the secret world, you know, the world that's yes. just behind, you know, just out of reach conceptually. The, you know the the you know, yeah, the the transcendent, right? Um and then so I think that when you put a spread of tarot down, whether that's three cards or five, uh sometimes it's a nine card spread. Sometimes people go completely nuts and do these, you know, five by five spreads, which is a bit much for me. That's uh, to me. That seems a little bit uh, <laughs> antithetical because it kind of the whole process of the whole thing, you know. Um, but when you put those things down, I believe that there is a conception of the tarot as it being a future telling advice, or uh, what am I saying? A future telling device. And what I would put down is that what the tarot does instead actually is uh, manipulate the past. I think that when these characters are placed in front of you, a good thing to do, rather than look at them too abstractly, uh, is to instead look at them in a bit more of a concrete way and actually to find yourself within the tarot spread. Like, who are you in this particular spread and what are you doing? Um, And what that does has to do with our misapprehension of what time actually is doing and things like retro causality we have this idea that our past is set in stone and everything that happened really happened but there's there's some evidence that that might not entirely be the case so i think that a tarot spread in particular is really good momentarily at least into opening a pathway not just to the future and what you are quote-unquote supposed to do because as a side note i don't think the tarot thinks in terms of what you are supposed to do but rather it creates a story about where you are now where you've come from and some potentials for where you could go right so i guess without getting too far off track here i think the way that this relates to kind of what we're talking about and its use materially for the kind of things that we're talking about is it really helps you to get a handle on these characters and these archetypes that we can often feel at the mercy of i think it's a it's a kind of communion with these things rather than constantly feeling like you're this tiny boat that's being battered about in the open sea right it gives you a kind it gives you an oar or a sail or something of that nature to feel as though you are interacting back and forth with the universe and if there's one thing that the jungian concept of synchronicity has told us is that the universe as we understand it that we live in right now wants to be as much as it can want anything, it wants to be interacted with. And we feel at our best when we are a character in the story rather than a passive observer. So that's a lot, but I also think that it's important to say. (laughs) 
Oh, I think that was very important. And I, I, I think that the last uh, observation does tie back in with our part one uh, evolution currently of, of looking at passivity, which is kind of a definition of, of the consumerist mindset. And uh, we are pursuing that in part one for people who uh, just need a reminder about that, that that's a very important distinction about between being an engaged participant. I mean, we like to think that, you know, even if we are not, or even if we're not an empowered participant in the sense of, of being able to, you know, really make an impact. We, we need that, that sense that seems to be a natural human desire. There are a couple of things I, I just want to jump back to, uh, David, because I think they really are important and, and they are going to inform uh, the, the continuing sort of uh, analysis of what we mean by the ghost radio signal. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there's an, an essential aspect of, of time, that, that the mm -hmm. signal has something fundamental to do with human conceptions of time. And mm -hmm. through people like Edward T. Hall and other anthropologists, we, we do know that different peoples around the world and at different times in history seem to have a very different sense of time. And that is both personal psychic experience and, and the culture with a lowercase c, uh, a societal or, or tribal or clan-based sense of time. And I think that one way to think of a, of a really uh, fundamental oscillation is, is the oscillation between language and time. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, uh, Korzybski called, you know, man, the, the time-binding animal, and language was the time-binding uh, capability. But I think that's a good example of also of, of how an oscillation is in our terms is not a binary opposition it's not a contrast it's not a dichotomy uh if anything it's it's more active in that sense of juxtaposition and and a, an oscillation it, it, it's moving backwards and forward language is not opposed to time time is not opposed to language it's not a binary that way mm -hmm. it, it it's a dynamic relationship that that has to be taken on board uh, in its in its kind of wholeness, whatever however we process that, um, but yeah. neither one nor the other makes sense on its own, and mm -hmm. I, I think that's one of the things then that when we look at at devices or practices or systems such as the tarot, it, it's kind of a method of triangulation, isn't it? Yeah, that we're it is. Yeah, we've word, got yeah. ourself and the world. And then we're using this external thing as a way of gaining a new perspective on both. Yeah, and it, yeah. It, it's a fundamental navigational, observational tool. And I, I think that's a really wonderful, practical way to look at it. Because um, it doesn't have to be one's only tool. You know, we're not saying obsess sure. on, on the tarot at all, but we're saying that here is another way of gaining some perspective or to use uh, a phrase that we we started off the our, our series in part one of an aerial view. It's very yeah. difficult to get an aerial view of oneself, one's uh, the baggage of culture that one carries. It's very difficult, and mm -hmm. and so any tool is 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 worth looking at. You know, 
Absolutely. And I think it's not just difficult, it's painful. And I think, yeah, I think, so I have two kind of thoughts about this. Whenever people engage with something like the tarot or magic ritual or even the I Ching, psychic phenomena, what have you, there's a kind of psychic pain that comes along with this. And most of that pain has to do with anxiety and fear because you have two options with your life. One of them is active and one of them is passive and it's completely fine if you want to be passive. Although I do believe that when you get to the the end of your linear time life, you'll feel great pain that's been sort of building up and not really dealt with properly, right? Because there is a lot of pain in actively engaging in your own story and kind of forcing it down into something that's that's recognizable by by yourself and the reason why is because the concretization of what you are where you come from and what you're doing yeah, indicates infinite numbers of of deaths right of things that you aren't doing and things that you will never do and can't do in this particular lifetime so i think that is really where a lot of the stories of fears about uh you know meddling in the occult and going mad or, or, you know, becoming possessed by a demon or what have you. I think that there is a heavy um, psychic toll that is in store for people who do these kind of things. That's the flip side to the healing aspect of engaging in these practices. Also, the second thing is more of a side note, but it made me think about our discussion about nostalgia. And I wonder if this isn't a good way of looking at what nostalgia actually is. So anytime that you engage in a practice like the tarot or magic, if you accept the hypothesis that we're putting forward here, that it is a uh, a way of collapsing quantum probabilities into a, a concrete story that we can then kind of kind of tell ourselves. Well, by doing that, you may in fact be collapsing potential lives and timelines that that you're never going to live, right? This is a bit of a complex idea, but I wonder if nostalgia is related to the idea that different potential timelines or lives that you could have lived have an aesthetic flavor or feeling to them, right? So I wonder if when you're remembering something from your past and you're you're feeling a kind of nostalgia for it or maybe something that you've that you've never lived, maybe that somewhat painful feeling is actually you kind of walking through a perfume spray of an unlived life, right? Does that make sense? It's oh, kind of I, a weird and I think idea. That- no, I think that's a be- and I think that was beautifully said, and it actually, you know, everything really is uh, connected, or at least I think that we have great frequency and, and resonance and connection, and the vibes uh, sort of really do harmonize. Because I was um, thinking last night about uh, the places that we haven't lived. Uh, I was I started off thinking about. My, my principal ex-wife and I could, uh, a lot of people thought we didn't have much in common. And I suppose ultimately that, that may have proved true. But one thing that was very, very distinct about both of us 
is that we could remember with tremendous detail any single apartment or you know place of residence that we had looked at but didn't end up living you know mm. and it, it was it's almost as if that triggered some sort of vector of possible lives you know unto itself and she would always go oh, you know i almost lived there you know and i would mm-hmm. I, I knew exactly what she was saying there's a kind of a psychic anguish slash fondness for you know what is really decisively imaginary lives you yeah. know um yeah and I, I think this is an active mechanism within dreaming. Uh, I've noticed this. I mean, I've been recording my dreams for decades now, and I, I think this is an, a really, really important aspect of the dreaming experience. Yes, it um, is. Oh. It, it, it's very, very peculiar. Um, so this idea of, of nostalgia being a kind of composite uh, packaging of any number of hypothetical lives that really, you know, have re- remained hypothetical. You know, their their timelines not realized, and yet sometimes our dreams, and I think sometimes the attitude of nostalgia, is a unifying principle. Because I, I would put under all of the the the. The times I've looked at, you know, I've thought of places that I almost, there's a kind of nostalgic mood to it. I can almost hear the music, you know? Yeah, oh, I yeah. I can hear what key the music's in, you know? It's it's very likely in a minor key, you know? And oh, I think that's that. very interesting, <laughs> you know? I think that's it is. very interesting. And I, and I love that you related that to dreams because I've never had a problem sleeping. I'm My wife often jokes that I could sleep standing up if I needed to, and I can. I can do that. I can sleep on planes. I can sleep wherever. And the trick to it is when you close your eyes, there is a feeling uh, of nostalgia that just sort of bubbles up in the brain. And I think some people run from that. It brings them great anxiety. But I actually, this is going to sound very goth, very emo, <laughs> but I uh, I go deep into the feeling of sadness and loss and then i fall asleep right it's almost like that sadness and loss is the the bridge to the sleeping world at least in my perspective that is i don't know if that holds true for everybody listening but that's always been kind of what's what's going on for me because you know there are lives that are unlived but i guess what i'm suggesting is that in the quantum realm of potentialities in a sense they do and they don't right um, so that there is just there is an aesthetic feel to it, right? I mean, it's as real for me and I'm sure for you as you know the the taste of cake or or something like that. You know, it's a real sense that we have that I think everybody has actually. Well, it's there are some senses that that I think we can have a bit of confidence. Truly, are. Uh, you know, in human terms, uh, universal, and I, I think what, that's one of the, the you know, the, the proof of that is is in archetypes which repeat culture mm-hmm. by culture by culture. But just to pick up on that sort of uh, mood issue, you know, the, the the image that comes to my mind, and it's interesting because it, it's a beautiful image unto itself, 
but it instantly triggers a feeling of kind of well nostalgic sadness and and uh, loss and some sort of um, well it's certainly not a uh, final loss but but it's something to it's a realization of, of time passing early early childhood memory of mine of the the Berkeley you know looking up at at the Berkeley and Oakland Hills at, you know, when the sun is going down on a Sunday afternoon. And so I might've been like in kindergarten or first grade, you know, it, there's a sense of like, there's a work week, you know, coming up. It's mm -hmm. that first realization of like, Oh, you know, out into the world on, on Monday. So, and there is that sort of loss of, you know, the weekend loss of, you know, time. And that, that first childhood realization, I see this just this whole East Bay hillside over Berkeley and Oakland, the the windows of houses lit up with the sunset, which is a beautiful image. But to me, I, I hear like Eric Satie's uh, Jim No Petty number three, you know, that that haunting. Uh, what's well, I think it's the as a just as a piano solo, it's the most beautiful, very simple piece. But it's it's this psychological experience. Um, and this maybe ties back into your idea of, of making things concrete, that there is the experiential aspect of all of these very vague, they almost exist on a completely quantum level that we can't really organize and that the organization is is satisfying enough that we're able to to deal with loss and sadness and grief and even horror if we can get some sort of concrete handle on it. And I wonder if that isn't what archetypes and therefore the the the, the characters of, of the the tarot, the major arcana particularly, you know, um, I wonder if 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 just that even the, the knowing of sadness and sorrow or, or fear, um, as long as it can be given a name, you know, and as long as, you know, think about with illness, if there's a diagnosis, it's much better than not having one, you know, sure. even if yeah. it's not a good diagnosis. So somehow this drive for, um, oh, well, here's a question. Is the drive towards, uh, making something concrete, tangible, symbolically graspable, uh, as opposed to, um, how to put it? Uh, well, is it a question of wanting more certainty, I guess is, is the way to put it, because I, I somehow certainty doesn't seem to me to be the same thing as what you're saying about the concrete. Do you agree with that? A hundred percent. No, it's not certainty at all. And that's what makes it Good. so scary. Okay. It, yeah, that's yeah. what makes it so scary is that it's going deeper into uncertainty, uh, which seems counterintuitive to the word concrete because you'd think, okay, this is, I can touch this. This is a concrete brick, right? But certainty is what you can find if you take no action whatsoever because you can be certain 
that you're going to be sitting in the same chair that you were sitting in five seconds ago, right? Uncertainty is getting up and concretizing, you know, the archetype of exploration, right? Or the or the archetype of adventure. Um, I like that. That's well yeah. said. Yeah, yeah, I get yeah. that. Yeah, it's it's just it almost in my head has this image of you know of like a a robot coming together like in the Power Rangers or something when they're you know they're five people and they each have these robots that are animals and when they have to fight the big bad guy all five of the animals come together into this big Gundam you know, uh, Japanese robot that, that, you know, that fights off the monster, right? So that the, the concrete, the concretization, got to find a better word that doesn't trip me up like that. <laughs> but the, uh, um, when it comes together into that, that robot, it becomes concrete. It, it, it is moving towards, uh, a kind of, of battle is a very uh, obviously warlike word that i'm not uh, not super fond of <laughs> but uh but but yes it's it is warlike as, it's yeah do you think a little bit um it's it's battle like uh, it's it's battle is a very battle like word oh my god how silly um but you know what i mean it's it's you know it's it's going out and it's doing things you know um and and certainty is actually the the enemy of what we're of what we're talking about here. Well, I absolutely agree, but I'm delighted to hear you say it so explicitly. But, you know, as, as difficult as, as concrete is as a word and, and as an idea, whatever the distinction is between those two, uh, I, I like it because I think it's a performance of, of the concept of oscillation because it, it does seem counterintuitive. The whole notion of concrete seems to be against dynamic process. But I think the way that you're using it, of, of, of making it a verb, and this is an example of how turning nouns into verbs really changes world perspective, if only in small ways. I mean, who's to say a small change of perspective won't trigger many other thoughts? But it really, really... Um, makes you think about the process of making something concrete. It is a process. To have thought of it in terms of uh, a noun is really very, very misleading. And I wonder if that doesn't hold true very broadly across uh, English 100%. anyway. You know, 100%. I'm afraid it does. But I think that the, the, the relationship, the dynamic oscillation of concrete in all its uh, forms and derivatives versus certainty uncertainty is is the essence of the whole deal you know i mean yeah. really philosophically that is the whole deal and in a way certainty and uncertainty as simple and mundane as those words are i think that's very helpful because it makes it seem less you know, philosophical in an academic sense. It's something that affects us all the time, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It's this constant constant process of formation and destruction, which couldn't get more universal than that. That's what's going on at all times. And we joke about, uh, you know, two episodes ago, 
having all of our toys out on the floor. And then last episode, we kind of started to arrange those toys into into their perspective boxes. Uh, that's what the the universe. That's what the ghost radio signal. I th- I think is doing at all times it's just constantly putting all of its toys out on the floor and leaving it up to us to funnel them into perhaps a concrete toy box which then explodes and then we do it again and then that one explodes and then we do it again and that's what's fun for god right that's that's how god that's how god has fun um and that's what i think it means maybe to uh to, to be alive, you know, is to do that kind of stuff. I think you're you're disappointing God or the great spirit of the universe with a capital U, whatever you want to call it, when you don't when you don't mimic it, right? When you don't do what it does naturally. Uh, yeah. Well, that's a that's an interesting perspective because I mean I I think we're going to have to uh, to think about that and not try to take that too much on board right now sure. uh, because I think the, 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 you know, one issue is that a lot of people feel they are doing that. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, we may not agree with that perspective. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's, that's a very interesting, um, very practical thing to explore, you know, um, and, and thinking of, uh, you know, practicality, because um, we do want these discussions to really percolate down to to changes in, in lives and, and, mm-hmm. and things that mm-hmm. we can do in a positive, proactive way to, to gain a little bit more navigational clarity and, and uh, real ability, um, is to think about quantum issues in a very, very practical around your house sort of way blow yeah. up the scale if you can yeah and I, I was going back through um, the notes of my uh, my uh, late friend Toby who I, I think I've mentioned before he was sort of one of those really certifiable geniuses in the John von Neumann sense and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he unfortunately uh, committed suicide but he has okay. a, a a thing well this is this is going back a while so it's something that I've yeah but thank uh he, he has an example for, you know, kind of kid science. He, he was always thinking in terms of breaking things down, mathematical, physical issues into things that were, you know, familiar to people. And his idea is like to focus on the door, a doorbell, you know, and it's kind of a, a quantum situation because you don't know if the doorbell isn't working until someone comes, right, and presses it. Because it's working fine. If no one's at the door, it's working fine. In, in, but we don't normally think of it that way, do we? We think of it, well, in the negative situation, well, if someone comes to the door, presses it, and then has to knock because we didn't hear it, you know? It's a very negative sort of inverse way of, of looking at things. And it's also kind of a quantum way of you don't really know until something else happens, you know, there has to be a decision made. There has to be some sort of, of movement that way. Um, anyway, I just thought of that. It's, uh, oh, it's, no, that's great. Yeah, yeah. No, I really like the doorbell metaphor. And I think that 
once you start thinking about things in that term, like the concept of everything actually working until you try to do it, it that might from a again something a, kind of like a path we don't necessarily want to go down today but you know from a a kind of new thought perspective from the 1920s right uh that has some pretty interesting implications for well actually everything we're talking about does for kind of the ah, sounds so new agey right but here we go to the you know the power of kind of positive thinking you know and, and how, how you conceive of these things well, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, I really don't think we, we need to apologize for that phrasing because, I mean, mm-hmm. some interesting people like Robert Anton Wilson, some of the people who uh, have been, you know, real followers of, of the tarot and the I Ching, Philip K. Dick, John Cage, Borges, you know, a lot of the really the cool kids have, have been, you mm-hmm. know, involved in this kind of thinking. And I think if, if, some of the the key members felt confident in talking about the positive the power of positive thinking i mean it's unfortunate that became a cliche but one of the things that we've talked about in um uh across the board is um how magic within a, a sort of a sacred or indigenous context can become degraded, you know, and and we can see that with psychoactive drugs becoming sort of degraded down to the level of alcohol and cigarettes. I mean, that's what cliches are. They're just kind of overused, uh, but but maybe really important ideas, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I I think the power of positive thinking could be, you know, recast and, and absolutely salvaged from that unfortunate pop culture exhaustion. Um, mm. But that's another one of, of the practical exercises that I, that I think that you and I are engaged in is, is how to energize and resuscitate um, some, some real cultural exhaustion points, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, in, a, in, in, in a kind of a, a mixture of Jungian farming here. We're going to try to aerate the fields of the collective unconscious. That's a really, Ooh. that's a real mixed metaphor, but I, hey, I don't know. It works for me. Yeah, that, that completely works for me. Sorry, I, <clears throat> I choked on my drink a little bit there. Um, no, that absolutely makes sense to me. You know, the power of positive thinking might be better reframed as the power of active thinking, of just sort of understanding that the things that you think do have a kind of consequence and you know, the ability to concretize, to quantumly collapse different potential realities into the one that you are experiencing currently at your point in this strange, linearly perceived timeline, you know. But I do <clears throat> I do want to get to two things that I've been thinking about since you mentioned them earlier in the episodes. And one of them, um, which we might have touched on, the practical advice, right? Right. That, and then uh, I personally love hearing about your your dreams. So I'm very curious as to what this uh, this dream yeah. this, this upcoming dream is all about. You know, there's this kind of cliche thing of, you know, you never want to tell people your dreams, and I get where that comes from because in a lot of cases people get too 
exact. You know, it's like I was in a room and it was my bedroom, but it also wasn't my bedroom. And my mother was there, except it wasn't really my mother. <laughs> and already, you know, the eyes are glazing over and whatever. But I, I think you have a very kind of streamlined approach to to telling us about your dreams. So those are the two things that I am interested in hearing about here at the end of this bonus segment. Okay. Well, I, I now have uh, two bits of practical advice. One just emerged. Two for the uh, price it, of one, baby. This is how we do we things here. Yep. yep. And and so this is a really good listening language one. Uh, only a few minutes ago, uh, David postulated resuscitating the power of positive thinking simply by substituting active for positive, the power of active thinking. And I, as a teacher of language arts, I really emphasize the importance of the simple technique of word substitutions, because it, there's nothing simple about them. They can be really, really important. And I think that's a good example of where a rhetorical assertion, positive, you know, positive, that has moral uh, implications sometimes. Yes. Uh, David instead changed that to active which is a beautiful choice because active is an active word. You know, yeah. it has that inherent in it. And yet, in terms of a rhetorical assertion, it, it's it's completely open-handed. It's not neutral, exactly, but it's completely open-handed. There is no uh, extra freight being carried there. So, first point, psychic defense system. Be very alert to language. You can break that down as a receiver. You can do a lot with how you process language to really get a feel for what other people are doing, what the, the human environment around you is about, and the media environment. And word substitutions where you de-rhetoric uh, is a very, very powerful uh, tool for a little bit more psychic calm okay my my the the one that i started with though um my positive uh advice my active advice it's something that doesn't come naturally to me at all uh it's it's in the category of something i don't want to hear and one of the things that david and i will be exploring as kind of the expedition party leaders is the idea that sometimes there are things that we we need to look at that we don't want to hear. Yeah. Uh, and, and this will sound simple, but I, I really believe that in my personal assessment of my character, this is at uh, 180 degrees opposite of me in a larger metaphoric sense. And it is simply this. Take the time to read the manual or whatever for whatever new purchase, whatever new system, whatever. If there is a manual, be grateful for it. There are a mm -hmm. lot of parts of life there's no manual for. But in that sense of enjoying work and accepting that it is work, but that that's not a, a dirty word, taking the meditative time to read the manual, if you're someone of my character who's who's not a manual type person, I want yeah. to avoid the manual. Same. Uh, yeah. You know, and I think a lot of people understand that very well. If you break with that habit, 
as simple as it sounds to say, it's not simple to do. If you break with that habit and really take the meditative focused time, it's a very enriching, satisfying experience. It's not something arrived at easily. It's, again, one of those acquired tastes in life. It's it's a kind of enforced maturing as far as I'm concerned. But it really has helped me. It, it's something simple in, to say, not mm-hmm. simple to do. In so my that's experience, my Yeah, in my experience in life, by the way, everything that is worthwhile that helps you to grow and develop as a person is both simple to say and exceedingly difficult to do. Like, I think that's probably right. I think you're right. Yeah. yeah, like work out every day. Don't eat, you know, donuts. My mother-in-law buys donuts every morning, and I have to just look <laughs> at them. I just have to look at them. And I know that there's cinnamon in there, and I love cinnamon. It's one of my favorite flavors, but I can't do it, you know. So simple in concept. Just don't eat the donut difficult in execution absolutely absolutely well i think that's a that's worth reminding all of us that yeah, yeah that that i think that holds true about everything really you know significant it, it's yeah. easy to say difficult to do to execute. don't don't post that political opinion on twitter just don't do it <laughs> easy to say easy yeah. to say and you can go through all the reasons don't take that drink all of it you know don't you know Leave the stripper alone. All of it. Easy to say. In theory. Yeah. Man, yeah. Difficult to do. Difficult <laughs> to do. Um, dream time. Hit okay. me with this dream. I seem like okay. I'm jumping at the bit here because I am. I want to hear this dream. Okay. All right. So I'm I'm among like several hundred people, I maybe a thousand, in this giant scientific industrial manufacturing center of some alien or interdimensional kind. Uh, if for people who like remember the old uh, time tunnel show, that's kind of what it reminded me of. But the, in addition to the vast size of the thing, the, the scale is weird. Everything is oversized. So humans all seem smaller by comparison. And so in this kind of trance-like state, we're all moving kind of on a tour of this enormous facility. Um, there's no talking. Any kind of understanding is, is sort of telepathic. And I had the idea that my fellow uh, tourists uh, are all people who are dreaming that I'm in contact with uh, people mm. dreaming elsewhere, kind of like Walt Whitman's poems. But then there are these very tall figures that are eight feet high wearing like pale blue robes. And they have these white helmets that have a generic sort of suggestion of a face, uh, but kind of unsettling. So they're the principal operatives and I somehow understand them to be called missionists, okay? Mm-hmm. It, it's not clear how they can see through their helmets or if their perception is some sort of, you know, uh, of a different kind, but they're working these really intricate machines. And David, this is where it gets very Terrence McKenna-ish, okay? Very intricate machines. 
which instead of being assembled out of any sort of uh, material in a metal you know, or plastic polymer sense, they appear to be composed of pure data, perfectly mm. transparent three-dimensional mechanisms made of complex unknown symbols, uh, you know, intricate patterns of numbers and figures. And these devices are in turn projecting or printing still more complicated images in what seems like a, a sort of a stained glass waterfall running through the plant. And, you know, these hypnotic equations, hieroglyphic scenes, you know, not just lines of, of symbols, hieroglyphic scenes and dramas, you know, just mysterious puzzles. And then I come upon... Uh, a figure that I take to be a higher being and authority and called a astronomer. So astronomer with like an N, like, hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I, I think it looks like an enormous hard lozenge of white chewing gum. And to give you an idea of the size in like a public plaza, as a, like a Klaus Oldenburg sculpture, at least 10 people, you know, could have sat down on this thing. But that's not the key. It opens like a locket or like a, a bivalve, you know, mollusk. And inside, oh, wow, there's way more volume and substance than there appears to be from the outside. And it's this pure white dynamic, but thick latex paint like stuff. And it can stir itself. Mm -hmm. And the man in front of me in this group of people, these, you know, dreaming people going through this weird factory, he, uh, he starts showing signs of physical strain as he gets near this swirling mass inside the giant lozenge and he starts shuffling as if his legs are shackled and then starts really just freaking out and the mass and the mess inside the lozenge swirls really really forcefully and these photographic images enormous images appear uh you know simple things like a boy herding some ducks around a lake and a man and a woman and then a man and a woman and this little girl. Hmm. And then the little girl fades out. And the man starts to just twitch and spasm and just, and then the images fade away. And he's like regained full posture and he's moving really comfortably, no longer dragging his feet. It's like some sort of private ritual had, had taken place. Then out of the corner of my eye, I see this one a woman break the line and leap into the center of the white goop and disappear with a squish and a splash hmm. and never reappears. And then the astronomer silently seals itself again like a casket, you know, hmm. or a clam. Hmm. And so I woke up uh, with this just beautifully but simple benign sense of, of good fortune, as if, you know, as if I'd seen something that I was supposed to, 
you know, and, and despite the ominous appearance of that, you know, the astronomer sort of creature and the, you know, in, insectile uh, industrial, uh, you know, precision of, of the factory, if it was a factory, they were at least making beautiful things or mm -hmm. thing. Some kind of zoetrope carousel river of higher knowledge, perhaps. That's what I ended up writing when I woke up. That's fantastic. And it reminds me of one of the most influential moments in my life. I was um, in the fifth grade. I was living in Germany. And <clears throat> the highlight of my months in school, because I didn't really care for school all that much, was the Scholastic Book Fair right? And they would send out these catalogs about a week in advance, and you'd have your parents mark down the books that you were going to pick up when the Scholastic Book Fair came through your school, and they'd send you with money, and then you'd, you know, you'd buy the books. So I'm at the Scholastic Book Fair, and it's taking place in an empty classroom, but there are these tables with all these books on them, and I'm so excited. I'm getting all these Goosebumps books and everything like that. But at the corner of the room, there was this massive easel with, um, you know, with some big kind of sketch paper on it, and it's turned to a completely blank page, perfectly white. And I had this sudden sense of what I would later understand as being on a on a trip. You know, I've mentioned in the show before that I've been on the DMT journey, and it was very very similar to that. But I suddenly imagine myself as <clears throat> incredibly, incredibly small uh, and inside this enormous white block of sketch paper, right? Mm. And the way that I would describe it uh, to people actually is very similar to the Nostronomer in your dream as a kind of roiling mass of just pure white that I'm in and I am kind of vibrating on this on this level, right? Where I'm almost not a person anymore. I'm just this kind of speck or pinprint on this white expanse of paper. And uh, yeah, couldn't help but... Th and then, of course, I snapped back to it. And it was very DMT-like in the sense that I felt like I had lived uh, more than a lifetime. Because I was, you know, probably... 12 years old here, 11 or 12 years old, uh, more than a lifetime in this, in this moment. And, uh, that sense of pinprick smallness against vast white has just always stuck with me and also never came back, never experienced anything like that ever again. But it's so clear in my memory because of how, how vivid that was. wonder if there's a connection Oh, I, I, I think there, there are multiple connections. And I, I think it's interesting, uh, the idea of, of something uh, having incredible vividness uh, that was really unique, you know? It, mm -hmm. it never repeated. And I think that's a very, very interesting idea in the sense of what repetition means to endurance, you know, mm -hmm. to, to memory. Uh, there's a very odd confusion about that because you would think that that memory would be 
driven by repetition or would be assisted. That's that that's so often not the case, is it? I think that that is an archetypal experience. I think that one enters into the archetypal ecosystem, you know, in a very direct sense, almost with, you know, that may happen sometimes just, you know, just because it happens, right? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you put your hand through into the other dimension somehow. And that's a very peculiar experience, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I wonder how many people have those things and just kind of, you know, shake them off and think, huh, that was weird. When, you know, when you might have just touched, that might be the experience, you know, besides places that I've been through the assistance of DMT and salvia divinorum, LSD, mushrooms, what else? Oh yeah, San Pedro cactus, the list goes on. Um, completely sober as a kid, as a child, you know, I was kind of, uh, yeah, I was, I was trans transported. If I had been alone uh, on a dirt road in the country somewhere, I would probably think that that was an alien abduction. And who knows? Maybe it was. Maybe you, maybe we get abducted in in strange places. But uh, or inhabited. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that certainly mm -hmm. that uh, it, it's it's kind of um, it's sort of like the reverse of a hand puppet. You know, mm -hmm. where <laughs> inside becomes outside and outside becomes inside. Um, I, I think that that's kind of what can happen to us is that the archetypal world, um, you know, shifts over and and we, we we're no longer sort of just in it, but it's inside us, which maybe, mm -hmm. you know, maybe it is all the time. And, and maybe that is uh, kind of what. Um, you know, a possible outline of, of what the ghost radio signal is, mm -hmm. um, which gives us more work to do, I think, on on the idea of archetypes for next time. I, I think we've kind of been using that term, uh, well, certainly with deference to, to Jung, but um, in kind of a generic sort of, you know, literary terms sort of way and maybe we need to pin that down a little bit more fully because as we said with the idea of character which is sort of where this uh latest segment of discussion has has been focused is the the notion of character is is so very flexible you know from uh from porky pig to hercules you know, mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of all over the place. Um, mm -hmm. And I think even though archetypes seems to have more focus and I, I, I then characterize, I think it certainly does. And I think there are ways to think about that. We looked at the, the whole metaphorical navigational capability of, of the tarot. And we may, you know, touch on that again and again. Um, but Archetypes, I, I think we need to uh, do a little bit more thinking to get a little bit more precision on that. Um, sure. And I, I, I have some ideas, but I, I think that's going to be something to mull over. And we'd welcome, you know, people's thoughts on that. Archetypes uh, seems to uh, connote certain things to uh, certain people. Um it, it's not a consensus idea. Uh, some people arrive at it from the psychological perspective. 
many more, I think, from uh, mythology and, and literature and the arts. Uh, but it's it's something to to start us off for next time and looking at maybe some other extensions of how archetypes manifest in different yeah. forms. What do you yeah. think about that, David? I think that sounds perfect. Yeah, I think that sounds perfect. I think we can wrap this one up. I think that this is another Toys on the Floor episode, which are a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, maybe next time we can do a bit of um, a bit of organizing. I think that's a good pattern. I, I you know, we, we didn't. This is an organic pattern. That's, uh, you know, we we didn't set out to 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 you know planning that exactly. But I think that is a good, reasonable uh, way to look at at at, our, at this part of the series. That will be uh, unpacking a lot of interesting. Uh, toys and ideas, and then trying to organize them, and then unpacking some new ones. And I think that's kind of a good, a good organizing principle, so to speak. I think so too. Well, all right, folks. Thanks so much if you're listening to this. That means you subscribed to the bonus Patreon episode. Chris and I thank you very much for your support, and we would love to hear from you. We would love for you to help us organize all these toys because I know a good portion of people who are patrons right now and i know you will have thoughts about this so we want to hear them but until next time thank you very much for listening and uh i guess that's me signing off thanks everyone take care